0: Welcome everyone to another episode of What They Aren't Telling You with Melissa Floyd. Today we're going to talk more about the unpopular opinion. And I like getting both men and women to weigh in on this because we have people that are trailblazing, obviously in multiple areas here, that go against the grain and have done so confidently and had the endurance to sustain over time. And today we welcome a wonderfully intelligent woman who I've interviewed before with Dr. Bob on the Vaccine Conversation. Many of you already know who she is when you hear her name. Some of you, this will be your first time being introduced to her. She is definitely a force to be reckoned with, and I have a lot of respect for her. Today we welcome Barbara Lowe Fisher. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want me to carry that intro around with you everywhere you go? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I know. It's, it's so nice to hear those things, isn't it? It motivates us. It's very nice. Us. <laughs> so this new podcast is all about the evidence-based unpopular opinion, which is you're doing the research, you're looking at the data, but you're coming to a conclusion that is different from the majority. And then on top of that, you're being crucified for it. So when I thought of having women on here to discuss this, you were the first that came to mind for a few reasons. And you've sort of accidentally found this mission, pursuing information and questioning safety, of a very controversial product, which is vaccines. So the first thing I want to know is, when did you realize, as you got into this, when did you realize that you held the unpopular opinion on this topic?
1: (laughs) From the very beginning, in the spring of 1982, when I joined with other parents of dpt vaccine injured children in the Washington, D.C. area. After we had seen the TV documentary, which became an Emmy award-winning documentary called DPT Vaccine Roulette, we got together and co-founded the organization Dissatisfied Parents Together, DPT for short. And our goal was to remove that crude, very reactive, wholesale pertussis vaccine in DPT from the market and replace it with a less toxic vaccine. I knew from the very beginning we were challenging the status quo I watched Lee Thompson, who was the producer of DPT Vaccine Roulette, be called amoral and psychopathic by leading doctors who were quoted in a major U.S. medical journal. The media attacked her viciously for really putting out the first information nationwide that let parents know that vaccines can cause brain injury and death. I mean, this is something that was absolutely not known. The doctors had been talking for years in the medical journals about it, but they had not told the parents. So when she produced this documentary, which was very well anchored, and I called the station and I went down and got copies of the medical literature, I was as shocked as she was when she began her to create the documentary at how little the public had been told. So I knew when she was attacked viciously that definitely it was a minority opinion, And I very shortly went attended a scientific meeting where I watched a young pediatric neurologist be personally and professionally crucified, really, uh, his career destroyed, because he had dared to publish an abstract that suggested that there were a number of infants who were dying after DPT vaccinations and their deaths were being misclassified as SIDS. He was a very uh, young, up-and-coming pediatric neurologist. And I clearly, as I saw him be attacked personally and professionally, I knew that we were involved in something that the institutions and society, the medical community, the government, did not want us to talk about. They didn't want to talk, us to talk about what had happened to our children after vaccination. And they were willing to go to great lengths to stop it.
0: And were you surprised by that response? You know, I think I really was because I
1: remember at that meeting, that scientific meeting where I watched this young man be destroyed, I remember I was approached by somebody from the National Academy of Sciences who clearly could see that I wasn't another doctor. I was somebody that wasn't really supposed to be there, I guess, an interloper, if you will. And he asked me why I was there, and I told him that I was a mother of a son who had reacted severely to the vaccine and then we came very sick and he never was the same again. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know, it only happens one in a million times. And I said, but if it only happens once, isn't that important? Isn't that child's life important? And he said, well, you know, for the greater good, so these things happen and that's just the way it is, you know, and I, I, I just, it, I was shocked that there was little value placed on the lives of the children who get, could not get through the process of vaccination without being harmed, and I instinctively knew it wasn't right. And that was my indication that this was absolutely an issue that the public needed to know about, and I knew that I would you know, do what I could to raise the consciousness of the people, educate parents so they could make informed vaccination decisions for their children. That really was our goal. It was a very simple goal—to prevent vaccine injuries and deaths through public education. And as I went on, because I've been doing the work for 38 years, I realized that at the core of it was the civil liberties issue—that is, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, religious belief. If you, because I, I grew up in a family of faith, and it was emphasized that you know you. You need to do the right thing. You need to pray to God for guidance and you need to, to constantly check yourself and be sure that you're doing the right thing. That is, follow your conscience. And so I knew that I couldn't turn away from something I considered to be an approach that I considered to be immoral. That is that some people are expendable. Some children are expendable for the rest. When they clearly hadn't done and were rejecting anybody who came forward with evidence that there was something wrong, that there were reactions taking place, that people were being harmed, kids were being harmed. I knew that it was wrong, and I I simply wanted to right a wrong, I guess.
0: And then when you first started talking about this in your own personal experience, and you were talking to friends, family members, people around you, did you start to see they too were having kind of a negative response to what you were saying and you realized even with them this was an unpopular opinion? Oh, I came from a medical family.
1: My mother was a nurse, my grandmother was a nurse, her sister was a nurse, my grandfather was a dentist. I had a lot of medical I grew up talking about science and medicine. I had great respect for science and medicine. I was good at it in school. I was good in biology and, and, and in the sciences. And so I I was very shocked. I was shocked to find out that there was so much pushback to what I thought was obvious. That is, if people are being hurt by a product that is supposed to be safe and effective in this old vaccine, the DPT vaccine was also not really effective. There were a lot of people who were getting five DPT shots and still getting pertussis. And of course, we know much more today. Back then, again, there was a complete ignorance on the part of the public regarding what vaccines were, what their side effects were, who high-risk people are. But there has not been a premium placed in the society on doing the kind of research that will identify those who are biologically, genetically, epigenetically, environmentally at greater risk for having an adverse response to vaccination. There just has not been the emphasis. We've tried for four decades to have there be an emphasis, and certainly the 1986 National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act had research as a core part of that act, but you know, that's a whole nother story. The bottom line is that powerful institutions, that is the pharmaceutical industry, the medical community, the government agencies, who are all in partnership with each other, absolutely do not want to talk about the casualties of one size fits all mass vaccination policies. And this is very relevant today as we see these COVID nineteen vaccines being fast tracked to market. And It's been a hard uphill climb because, as you point out, when you challenge the status quo, when you go against the grain, there are people who are much more powerful, much wealthier, much more politically connected than you are who are going to try to stop you from speaking what you believe is the truth
0: about what you found out. And what does it feel like to be doing the actual research, to be really digging into these studies? We're talking about peer-reviewed medical literature to be spending weeks that turned into months and eventually turned into years verifying and validating what you have come to find and then have the entire world basically say that's not valid after all?
1: Well, this I learned very early also in 82. At the end of 82, medical historian Harris Coulter and I began our two and a half year investigation into the medical literature on pertussis and pertussis vaccine, the whole cell vaccine. And we corresponded with physicians and scientists in the U.S. and around the world. I interviewed more than 100 mothers of DPT vaccinated children for the book. And Harris and I really believed when that book was published in February of 1985 that it was going to change everything because we had documented that book. It was the first thoroughly documented questioning of the status quo in terms of vaccination, vaccine policy, vaccine law. And we used the pertussis vaccine as an example of what was wrong with the mass vaccination system and why it needed to be reformed. And what we found was just the opposite happened. The wrath of the medical community, just like what happened to Lee Thompson with DPT Vaccine Roulette, the wrath of the medical community and government agencies and certainly the pharmaceutical companies came down on us. And there was a, two knee-jerk hysterical reviews in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal- In fact, I believe one of those papers accused us of making the cases up. And we had, I had gotten the medical records. I didn't put anything in that book, any case in a shot in the dark that I didn't have backup for, medical records, et cetera. And I had that all on file. So there were no made up cases. They were all real. And it was just, it was that old saying, uh, this German immunologist Wolfgang Ehrengut, who was an early critic of the DPT vaccine. What must not be cannot be. That was the reaction when we put forth that book, fully documented book, which really helped as a catalyst for bringing a safer vaccine in here in 1996. DBT Shot in the Dark was a, a shot across the bow of the mass vaccination system. And uh, it played a role, too, in, in the 1986 Act that was passed in 86. Uh, what did it feel like? We thought everything would change. You know, we thought once the truth is out there, things would change. And that was my first lesson, that when you come up against very powerful institutions, you better be prepared to not have a step go forward, but a step back. It's always two steps forward, one step back.
0: Right. And when they talk about making things up, and you look at this and you think to yourself, going against the grain, having this unpopular opinion, what would be the incentive for you or others to fabricate this. That doesn't even make logical sense. It doesn't,
1: because we had no money. I mean, in the early days, we used to put together in Xerox $3 parent information packets. That's how we were able to continue as an organization. We were just working out of our basements, and we were just trying to, to help other parents not have to suffer what we had suffered. That was our motivation. And I think, you know, when we look, put it into historic context, the early 80s was less than 20 years from the major social upheaval in this country, uh, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement, the environmental movement. There were organizations that were cropping up like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, the Missing and Exploited Children. There were Raiders, Naders. Being a consumer advocate in the early 1980s was actually in fashion. And the major media was not owned by just a few corporations like it is today. They were competing with each other. There were many different small media companies all over the country and all over the world. And they were competing with each other for viewership or readership or, you know, whatever. So they wanted to highlight debate. It's how I was able to get on radio and television shows. I was just an ordinary person, a mother, who was challenging powerful people, powerful experts and in institutions. That made good television or good, it made a good story in a newspaper. So both sides of an issue were presented, and then the reader was to make up their own minds. That's not the way it is anymore. Now there are only a few corporations owning media. It is dominated by the advertising from the pharmaceutical industry. You have the government having a great deal of influence, as we've seen during the last few years, over the social media platforms telling them they shouldn't be covering news about vaccine reactions and people challenging the vaccination system. So no longer is it possible to get the other side of the story on television or radio or in the mainstream media. And that's why social media, the Internet, certainly, I mean... People have to remember back when I started, there were no cell phones. There were no personal computers, no fax machines. There was no FedEx. We had radio, television, newspapers, magazines, and landlines, and the post office. That's how we communicated. And people can't even get their arms around it today. They can't imagine what that was like. It was a very different time. So... I've grown, you know, over the last four decades, I've seen this issue evolve into where we are sitting today with unbelievable restrictions on civil liberties, freedom of speech. Are you kidding? I grew up in the 60s. On the college campuses, they would have laughed you off the campus if you tried to stop people from having debates. That's all you did was debate inside the classroom and outside the classroom. There were protests on college campuses, anti-Vietnam War protests, civil rights protests. I mean, that was, everybody was supposed to be talking about these issues. Now, all of a sudden, if it's not politically correct, if it's not something that's condoned by the government or by industry or by the medical community or the scientific community, somehow it can't be talked about. That's just not the America I grew up in, and it's certainly not an America I want to live in, live the rest of my life in.
0: I agree with you. And because you mentioned the greater good, do you think there's a place for the greater good in medicine? Well, you know, it's interesting.
1: Around the mid-90s, I think it was 1995, I was on the Institute of Medicine Vaccine Safety Forum as the consumer representative. That's the other thing. They were inviting consumer representatives to be part of the discussion in government. And I spent more than 20 years on vaccine advisory committees and on public engagement projects. And I was at the Institute of Medicine for four years as a consumer member of this vaccine safety forum. And we had a meeting on um, polio vaccine and whether or not there should be a switch from the oral polio vaccine that could cause vaccine strain polio in the recipient or a close contact, continue to use that vaccine or switch to the inactivated polio vaccine, injectable vaccine that did not cause polio. Vaccines, stream polio. And during the meeting, there was a discussion about the greater good. And I, and I got up and I said, you know, what's forgotten here is that individuals make up the community. Individuals make up the whole of the community. If you devalue the life of an individual, by extension, you're going to eventually devalue the whole because it's not one or the other. It's together, it's an aggregate. So you know, once you say that one person's life is expendable, then the question becomes how many people are expendable in the name of the greater good? 500, 5,000, 5 million? How many people can be sacrificed for what is considered by those in control to be the greater good? And that's why I don't, I, it's a utilitarian approach to public health policy and law, it's immoral. And it was judged to be an immoral rationale at the doctor's trial at Nuremberg. Now, people get upset when people talk about the doctor's trial at Nuremberg in relationship to mandatory vaccination laws. But that was the birthplace. That trial was the birthplace of the informed consent ethic. It applied to scientific experimentation on humans. But after the doctor's trial at Nuremberg, Internationally, it was embraced as a principle, an overarching ethical principle that was applied to individuals who were going to take medical risks, a risk of a medical intervention like surgery or a test that could cause injury or a pharmaceutical product that could cause an injury or death. It's why when you go into a hospital, you have to sign an informed consent form. I understand the risks of this surgery. I am willing to take the risks of this surgery. Well, they want to take out vaccines from that uh, informed consent ethic. And I've argued, you know, again, for several decades, this is not appropriate. You cannot take a vaccine, which is a pharmaceutical product carrying a risk of injury or death, that is given to an individual, and you cannot predict if that individual is going to die or be injured by that product. You cannot separate that out from the informed consent ethic.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree with you. Obviously, like you're saying, the community is made up of individuals. And this is kind of like, it doesn't affect you until it affects you personally. And everybody wants to talk in these theories, the theories of the populations. But when you really get down into it, we need to be micro about it as well. Because obviously, each of those families lives matter as well. And how do you push them aside for some, in this case, to me, it's perceived, perceived greater good. Because many of these vaccines don't necessarily even work. Many of the vaccines don't prevent death. They count it as preventing death. But there's really no way to know that by you having it, you avoided certain death.
1: It's a way you can manipulate a population in the way that I believe we're being manipulated right now. And that is what's going to happen. We, we've had a, an example right now that when they were everyone was under quarantine that you couldn't leave your house. We've got masking now. Some states are by law requiring masking; others are not. But it's it, There are conditions for your the ability to participate in society, for your ability to exercise civil liberties. That is the right to assemble, the right to go into a church and assemble with other people, the right to enter a store or a, a gym, or unless you have there are certain conditions. You have to be masked. Uh, And I believe that what's going to happen after the vaccine is introduced, then the condition will be you cannot leave your home or you cannot participate in society unless you can show proof that you've been vaccinated. It's it's inevitable, really. They say the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, an article out this week, that they're going to start with the high risk groups, the elderly, people who have underlying chronic conditions brain and autoimmune and, you know, these different kinds of poor health conditions. And they're going to make them take the vaccine first. And if they don't, then they're going to have social restrictions on what they can do in society. And then they'll move to everyone because the goal is they want vaccine acquired herd immunity. They do not want naturally acquired immunity.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I saw a statistic last night that there have been, the World Health Organization is estimating that I think about 780 million people in the world, or 10% of the world's 7.8 billion population, has had COVID-19. One million have died worldwide. When you look at the infection uh, mortality rate, what you see is a 0.13% infection mortality rate. That is a little higher than impl- for influenza, which I think is zero point, uh, point zero one or zero. I'm sorry, zero point one. I can't remember exactly. Yeah,
0: point one zero.
1: Mm-hmm. COVID is a little higher than influenza. So we're not talking Ebola with a 50 percent mortality rate, or smallpox that had a 30 percent mortality rate, or tuberculosis, which still in some countries has a 20 to 70 percent mortality rate diphtheria, which was about 20%. I mean, the great pandemic of of 1918, influenza pandemic, was 2.5%. This has been completely blown out of proportion. It's not to minimize those people who could not get through the disease without being injured or dying. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we're not putting things in perspective. And it's all being done, this idea that we can't, as individuals have the right to autonomy or the right to really exercise liberty because somehow uh, we're jeopardizing the community.
0: Well, and what's funny is after these last six years for me, I have now become skeptical of anything that the majority quickly binds to or quickly starts doing or following or believing in. And I don't know if that's because I'm so used to having the unpopular opinion myself now but I know the majority of people are not critical thinkers. So when I see everybody hop on board and accept or comply with something, I think there's part of me that intuitively questions and wonders and now wants to dig in and find out more because I feel like something's kind of already wrong in that process. Do you share the same kind of skepticism when you see that?
1: Well, I mean, again, I go back to early experiences. I think uh, the how we approach learning and coming to conclusions and developing opinions as we go through life is really influenced by our early experiences as children. My mother, being a nurse, she, she was a great champion of the underdog. I learned to have compassion for those who are less fortunate than I am. My father was a historian and an army officer. He was kind of a Renaissance man who encouraged me to, I love books and art and music. And he let me know that even though I was a girl, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could do anything that I wanted to do if I was willing to work hard enough. And that was a very big lesson. And so I lived in many places and I learned how to adapt to new environments. I was lucky that I liked to travel. I liked to learn new things, but I was taught from an early age to not follow the cloud, to stand back and observe and gather information before I set it in at something. And I was also taught that adversity was not a bad thing. It's a good thing because it teaches us how to be strong and resilient in the face of life's challenges. So I really, from the very beginning, was not afraid to think independently. It was encouraged. I'm actually a glass half full person. I tend to believe and have faith that everything is going to be okay in the end, if, no matter what the challenge, as long as I can use my brain and follow my intuition and my conscience. So I don't consider myself to be a skeptical person. In fact, my mother accused me of putting on rose-colored glasses. Now, maybe that served me somehow well as I go forward here, because it's, it's, it has been hard. Mm-hmm. The challenges have been great. Uh, but I do think that if we are not afraid to think independently and resist peer pressure, which is very important, that we're often better off than just simply going on along with the crowd.
0: And even within the medical freedom, informed consent movement, we see different branches of belief systems. One person's supporting something while somebody else disagrees. There are conflicts on the messaging, conflicts on who to support conflicts of how to be effective with legislators. We even see people attacking our own and this term controlled opposition gets thrown around all the time. I was recently made aware of even some dissent, which I didn't know about until recently, with this 1986 act. And some saying it was purposely set up that way, you know, to make us fail. And once again, you fall into this unpopular opinion because you were part of that process. It's almost like, the unpopular opinion within the unpopular opinion. To me, it would be frustrating to work so hard and put all that effort into something and then have people still question your actions, even within our own community. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? So in
1: 1982, again, many years ago, when the pharmaceutical companies threatened to leave this country without childhood vaccines unless they got liability protection. That was their Black of Congress. And we were basically told, you know what, you can come to the table and argue for what you think the parents and the children should get. But if you don't want to come to the table, that's fine, too, because we are going to pass legislation that protects this vaccine supply in this country. That was the choice we had. So we came to the table and we fought as hard as we could to hold back three of the most powerful entities in society the medical community, organized medicine, the government, and the pharmaceutical industry. We didn't have any money. We were just parents of vaccinated children. We did the very best that we could. The old saying, you had to have been there, is really true. It's very easy to criticize when you weren't there. I was there. And I have absolute, without a doubt in my soul, I know that I did the very best I could. And so did the other parents who came up against those entities. And it is because I know I've followed my conscience and I know that I've done the best I could, that I just do not pay attention to those who, you know, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We did not know that we were going to be betrayed. We didn't know that the legislators who were creating the law within a year were going to begin gutting the law. We didn't know that the rulemaking authority that had been given to HHS was going to be exercised in the way it was to dismantle that law so that the federal compensation program that was supposed to be an alternative, not instead of a lawsuit, an alternative to a lawsuit. We didn't know it was going to be dismantled. We went forward with faith and good faith. And I learned, you know, we all learned a bitter lesson. When you're coming up against the powerful entities, that do not want to acknowledge the casualties of of these vaccines and the vaccine policy you better be careful because they have the means at their disposal to basically tear apart what we thought was going to be something that was going to be good for the people
0: and do you have advice for other parents or even individuals out there who believe themselves to be critical thinkers who are doing this work independently searching for this unbiased data from multiple sources but find themselves not aligning with the majority opinion. It can be a lonely place for a lot of people, especially those who are new to it. Do you have any advice for people like that? Well, I think you have to dig deep, and
1: I think you have to be very clear about what your purpose is. And if you believe that freedom of thought, speech, conscience, The civil liberties that are enshrined in the U.S. Constitution that have been adopted as human rights principles internationally, if you believe that is worth fighting for, then you're going to have to dig deep and find the courage, and you're going to have to find the wherewithal to stand up and fight for your freedom. This is a critical moment in our history. There is something going on worldwide. It is the creation of a new world order. And it's very much based on the idea that the individual can be devalued in the name of the greater good. So it goes back to the basic argument of mandatory vaccination, but it's bigger than that now. And that's why I've said that the mandatory vaccination issue is the tip of the spear in the culture wars that are going on around the world, and certainly in this country, I call it the vaccine culture war, but, you know, there's a lot of other components to it. But if, if they can force you, if the government can force you to put something into your body and the body of your child without your voluntary informed consent, then there will be no limit on, on which individual freedoms they can take away. This is about autonomy and protection of bodily integrity. And protection of autonomy is the first human right. So this is a very critical time. Everyone's going to have to make a choice. Are you going to bow down and, as I say, live as a slave? Or are you going to stand up and fight for your freedom?
0: And because we're talking kind of about what's going on, the last question I have for you uh, regarding the COVID vaccine, and it has been already mentioned there will be a lack of liability. So that has been on mainstream news, but I think kind of looked over by the average person, because I don't know if they really understand what that means. What do you think people should know? about the fact that the COVID vaccine is going to be liability-free.
1: Right. If they were willing to take down the 1986 law that did preserve liability for the companies for design defect, that is failure to make a safer vaccine, and that did originally hold the people who give vaccines, like doctors, liable in a court of law, if they can destroy a law like that and have no liability for these childhood vaccines and vaccines given to pregnant women today... What they've done on COVID 19 vaccine is set up a program that's even worse than the one that we have now that's been gutted for the regular vaccines. This COVID 19 compensation program, nobody's going to be compensated. They're not going to want to admit that there are vaccine reactions that end in injury and death with these COVID 19 vaccines. So, you know, we again, we're at a crossroads here. Are the people going to? Are they going to agree to being forced to get experimental COVID-19 vaccines that have been fast-tracked to market, or are they going to stand up for their right to make a choice? They certainly should be available, but should they be forced? I say they should not be forced on people.
0: Well, I agree with you, and as always, you are a wealth of knowledge. Uh, You have something new and exciting coming up with a new conference. Can you let people know what's going on with that?
1: Yes, the the 5th International Public Conference on Vaccination with a theme, Protecting Health and Autonomy in the 21st Century, is going to be by the end of October posted on its own separate website. It has more than 50 speakers addressing a whole range of topics, from scientists and physicians addressing medical and scientific issues to human rights activists to people who are looking at policy parents of vaccine injured children. It's a, it's a library, really, a contemporary library of information about the cutting edge issues regarding vaccination and health in the 21st century. And I encourage everyone to, to please take a look at that website and, and if you want permanent access to it to register. And you can do that on mdic.org.
0: Okay. And is that the place everybody should be tuning in to stay in contact with you and follow your updates? Absolutely. We have three websites, but
1: NVIC.org is our flagship website, and that is where you can get access to our NVIC advocacy portal, which keeps you informed of state legislation moving in your state that's vaccine-related. You can also read the Vaccine Reaction newspaper journal, which we put out every week, but you can get all connected to all of that on NVIC.org.
0: And for those who don't know about Barbara's personal story and what brought her into the vaccine safety awareness movement, you can check that out on the Vaccine Conversation podcast. Dr. Bob Sears and I did. We did a nice episode with her getting to know her own personal story and understanding what brought her to this place. But again, thank you so much for your time, Barbara. I really am inspired by you consistently. And I don't say that you know, in some kind of diplomatic way, I say that realistically, I am so encouraged and inspired by your intelligence, and how articulate you are and what you keep fighting for. And uh, thank you so much, again, for giving some time to us today.
1: Thank you, Melissa. I'm, I'm very impressed with your work. And you know, it's going to be young people like you who are going to take this issue forward into the 21st century. So congratulations on all the work that you're doing.
0: Thank you, Barbara, and we'll be in touch soon.